When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, the assistant editor of the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Jim Grossman, the executive director of the American Historical Association, and Jim Sweet, the current president of the AHA. Hi, Jim S. Hi, Jim G. Nice to meet you guys. Hi, Caleb. Um, So the first thing I'd like to ask you guys as standard with New Books Network interviews is if you could just tell me a little about yourself and your background. I'm Jim Sweet. Uh, I'm a professor of history at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, my, I'm currently the president of the AHA as well. Uh, my scholarship revolves around the history of Africa and the African diaspora. I'm Jim Grossman. I'm the executive director of the American Historical Association, where I have been since 2010. Uh, when I used to teach and write uh, history, it was mostly in African-American history and American urban history. And now most of what I write is about history and public culture, higher education, uh, and the culture of um, the culture of higher education and how history relates to what we do in the world. So the two of you are both at AHA. How did you get involved? I got involved in the AHA through committee work around. 30 to 35 years ago, uh, I was involved on a, in a, I've been involved in committees on the future of the AHA. Uh, I was involved with the, in the AHA's uh, ethics committee uh, sometime around 20, 25 years ago. And so through this various kinds of committee work, I became familiar with what the AHA does. And when the search committee back in 2010 Uh, decided who they wanted to be the executive director. Uh, I was on their radar. Uh, And at that time, it was just the right job for me. So for me, um, I've I've been a member of the AHA since very, very early in graduate school. Um, At the time, I thought it was the sort of way into understanding what the profession was about. And I was not wrong about that, of course. But I was naive. I didn't understand the profession, and it was sort of a window onto to how things worked for me, even as naive as I was. Uh, I don't think, I mean, if I let my membership lapse at any point, it was never for more than a year. So I was always engaged with the AHA. I found it to be of tremendous importance to my development as a scholar and a thinker and someone who was engaged with the profession. So I mean, I, and it's important for me to say that because I feel like too many younger scholars now don't feel the sort of allegiance to the to the profession. And I think this is the gathering place for us. It's really important. I wish more people would be members. Uh, 
so by virtue of that, though, I did become, I, I became engaged through the, through the meetings. I uh, eventually was asked to serve on a, a, a book prize committee, and I took great pleasure in doing that and did it with enthusiasm, which may have gained some notice among the people in the organization. Uh, I was then nominated to be on the, the, the council, uh, on the research division of the AHA council and did a, a term there. And then several years ago, I was, uh, I received a phone call from Jim Grossman asking me if I would stand for president. And I was shocked, but, uh, I was pleased to do it. So that's, that's been my engagement. Well, Jim just, Jim just referred to the gathering place. And I think actually there's a way in which that's a better answer to your question for me, because it goes back further. Uh, I started going to the AHA annual meeting. Uh, well, I first started going because I was looking for a job. Uh, fortunately, that's not what we do at our annual meeting anymore. But I became a regular when I was a young faculty member, uh, my early years as a professional historian. And this is partly because of my dissertation advisor saying, this is what you do, not as an obligation, but this is the way to become part of a community of scholars, a community of historians. And as part of his continuing obligation as my dissertation advisor, even after I finished, Leon would introduce me to people at the annual meeting. Uh, if he had a group of people who was going out for dinner, he'd ask me to, to join them. Uh, me and his other students. He introduced, he, he again, the gathering. He took the opportunity of the AHA annual meeting to introduce each of his students to a publisher for our first book, to introduce us to uh, a journal editor who could arrange publication of a book review. In other words, the, the AHA annual meeting was a way, was a, a gathering where my dissertation advisor could help me make the transition from being a student to a member of a scholarly community. So that's a better answer to your question, actually, of how did I first get involved? So could you talk a little bit about what this annual conference looks like? And uh, maybe if, if either of you have any uh, a other anecdotes, I, I, I did like, I like that. Uh... That story about well, I'll I'll start with what it looks like because I have a better sense of that and Jim has good anecdotes too. The annual meeting uh takes place every year the first weekend of January. Uh attendance pre-COVID generally varied from roughly thirty seven or thirty eight hundred to about five thousand. Uh it would be the highest, say five thousand it would would be in New York. And it's relatively affordable uh, compared to other annual meetings because it's the first week of January and nobody else wants to stay in a hotel the first week of January after New Year's. Uh, we generally have something like 400 sessions. Uh, the sessions are no longer predominantly the traditional conference research sessions where people stand up and read papers. Uh, we now encourage much more workshops, professional development conversations, uh, roundtables about important issues in the discipline, uh, sessions where lightning round type sessions where people have five minutes to talk about their current research. 
we actually encourage people to suggest formats that we've never heard of. So it's a, it's a large group. Uh, it can be intimidating to some people compared with small conferences. But one of the advantages is that you get to interact with and meet people from a variety of different fields. Uh, if you're someone who studies U.S. urban history, it's not only urban history historians and it's not only American historians. So you can meet people who do all sorts of different things. Uh, for people who went to graduate school in programs that were uh, very integrative across fields, it's a great place to maintain uh, those communities as well because you're all, in a sense, part of this larger, this larger group. Uh, so that's the structure. It's four days. Uh, there are plenary sessions as well. There are a lot of receptions, uh, where again, we've tried to break those away from traditional modes to make it easier for people to meet new people, uh, to interact with other people. We've tried to make them less liquor oriented. Uh, so it's an event that evolves over time. Uh, Stories, Jim, and I'll yeah. So, so it's, I'm sort of reflecting on on both comments you made, Jim. I think one, in the first sentence, I I'm very familiar with the description you gave, for example, of you know having Leon Leon Litwack, by the way. I don't know if you filled in the gap there, but um, Leon introduced you to people and sort of you know the networking of it, right? And, and it is gathering. I I always viewed that as community building and gathering. Um, and the same thing happened with my advisor in the early days. And that's how I made connections and met people. However, listening to you describe that and thinking about my own experience, I think that there are probably people out there now who would just sort of sniff and say, oh, that's just old boys network. Right. Um, and it is kind of interesting that the meeting for me, at least it has transformed. And I think a lot of people are unaware of this. Right. I mean, in other words, the, the critique is one which just sort of stands uh, without without any sort of examination. Uh, but for those for those out there who may have not been to a meeting in some years, I think you would find it to be a very different place. A because there is no longer a sort of uh, you know a job search. It, it's not most people are not coming just to search for jobs, uh, and the kind of networking that takes place oftentimes is is building off of networks that already exist. For example, in the digital world, right? These are people who see each other in the digital world, and this is one of the first times they're able to come together. So there's a really interesting new dynamic. And I would say that, you know, the meeting we just had in New Orleans was fascinating in that regard, because so many of our, our professorial colleagues actually, for whatever reason, didn't come or wouldn't come or because of the COVID situation, understandably. Uh, but what it meant was that uh, so there were so many, or at least evidently, there were many more graduate students, high school teachers. It was a very different meeting. And I found that to be, uh, I think, thinking to the future of the organization. I think that's where we're going to be. So uh, the meeting is, is, is a moving target. It's not, it's not a fixed entity at all. I think that's really important, uh, that it's a moving target, that it's evolving. And we are very self-consciously right now thinking of new ways to think about that meeting. Uh, Jim mentioned the digital networking, which is really important because, first of all, that's very different from the old boy network. Uh, it's much more, as we know, with all of the problems with Twitter, there's a democratic aspect to Twitter. And I, a few years ago, I got into the elevator and there was this woman in the elevator as well. We were the only two people. I think maybe there was a third person. Uh, 
and I noticed she looked familiar, sort of. And then I noticed her name tag, and I said, and I think we noticed each other's name tags at the same time. And there was this, oh, I know you from Twitter. And that happens actually more than you would think. People who have interacted in social media see each other at the annual meeting. And it's, it's, it, it shows that, that online networking has not replaced in-person, that it, these are complementary, and that the ability to meet people online is so different from what it was before, which also gets you to this issue of the old boy network. So first of all, that does mean the old boy network democratizes, changes. But even the role I was mentioning earlier of one's advisor, just because we don't like the old boy network for all sorts of good reasons, and it's become an old boy and old girl network, quite frankly, given the demography of the discipline, uh, that does not diminish the responsibility of a mentor, whether it's your dissertation advisor or somebody else, it does not diminish that person's responsibility to do all they can to integrate you into the community of historians. And so you can say, well, sure, having your advisor include you in dinners, introduce you to people is an aspect of this old boy, old girl network. That doesn't mean that this person is not responsible, quite frankly, to do that sort of thing. And that's something that I've tried to communicate as executive director of the AHA in thinking about our work in the area of graduate education, uh, that mentorship is something that we need to be thinking about very consciously. One of the things we're emphasizing, for example, is there's no reason why a graduate student has only one mentor. Why just a dissertation advisor? Why not two or three different people? One of them might not even be a faculty member if a student is working on campus in some other unit uh, who helps students uh, make the transition from being a graduate student to being something else, whatever that might be. Uh, and of course, that includes networking. Of course, it includes introducing people to other people whom you know. You know, you guys have gotten into it a little bit. Uh, but I was wondering if you could talk about some of the the challenges that AHA has has faced in years, and like you said, also you know COVID in particular, that's probably been a major challenge. How has that impacted the AHA uh, among other things? Well, one of the great challenges Jim alluded to this uh, about the annual meeting not primarily being a place to find a job. That's one of the great challenges in terms of the annual meeting is that transformation. So 30 years ago, 20 years ago, the annual meeting was characterized by two large things in a sense. One of them being that it was a research meeting, which means people read papers. And the second was it was an academic job market. We had upwards of 300 uh, positions being officially interviewed for. 20 years ago at our annual meeting. We don't do that at all anymore. There is no academic job market at the AHA annual meeting. There is no official process anymore for interviews at the annual meeting. Uh, in part, that's because it's a lot cheaper to do this by Zoom, although some of us believe in-person interviews have advantages. 
in part, quite frankly, because of the sexual harassment issues that emerged over the years or that have existed, quite frankly, since the beginning. Uh, it just seemed like this was not something that we wanted to be at the center of our conference anymore, and it wasn't going to be anyway. So these are this is a big challenge is taking something that attracted people because it was where you presented your research to colleagues and someplace where you look for a job and changing it to something that was more about professional development, more about networking. Uh, and quite frankly, networking is a word that has kind of a negative connotation uh, in academia, especially in the humanities. It seems very instrumental. Uh, so you can call it something else. Uh, building community or whatever. Uh, so that's one big challenge. Obviously, COVID was another. All of us had to cancel our meetings or put them online. Some people canceled them. Some, some of them put them online. What we've learned is that an online conference or you want to call it a hybrid conference, nobody really knows what that is right now, is not the same as in person. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. In fact, just the opposite. One of the things we've learned is that the online version of what one, of a of an in-person conference can be is more democratic in a way. It can be accessible to people who have limitations of time, limitations of travel money, limitations of ability to travel for all sorts of reasons. And quite frankly, often limitations of geography, depending on where a meeting is. So what we've realized is that it is imperative to experiment with online equivalents of, versions of, in-person annual meetings. It's not the same thing. Just like digital publication is not a matter of making a PDF out of a print publication and putting it up on, the, on a screen. It's, it's epistemologically different to publish digitally. Uh, it's a different way of thinking. You're not thinking narratively. You're thinking in terms of links. So it's, it's a different thing. Well, the same thing with conferences. An online convening is different. Uh, think about the chat function in a Zoom conference, right? When you're sitting in a, uh, in, in a room at a conference, and there's people in a round table having a conversation, it's kind of rude to lean over to the person next to you and start to chat. But, and you certainly can't chat with people sitting across the room for you from you. But in these where the where the chat function is enabled in a remote digital convening, you have that opportunity. Uh, we have found, I think all teachers, Jim can speak to this better than I can, but my sense is that nearly all teachers have found that shy students actually participate more in Zoom classrooms than in in-person classrooms because of that chat function and maybe something else. So, so, so the idea of this other kind of convening is really attractive for a variety of reasons, and we never knew that before. My contribution here would be to say simply that, um, so Jim talked to some of the, I think, you know, organizational issues, but I think the challenges of, of the organization are the challenges of the profession. And AHA has been really, really, I think, at the forefront of helping those of us who are practitioners 
solve some of the problems, whether they're problems of undergraduate enrollment or whether they're problems of how we create career diversity and trumpet and promote that. Um, or more recently, you know, how we defend ourselves against attacks from the outside about things like divisive concepts. Uh, so I think that, you know, I think there's two ways of, of, of answering your question about the challenges of the organization, because in many respects, the organization reflects the challenges that the larger profession uh, has on its hands at any given moment. So, um, you know, and I think if you wanted to talk about any one of those aspects, we could probably go on and on about any of those. But I think it's important to recognize that it is the AHA, as, you know, insofar as it is a gathering place, it is the place that allows us to be able to address some of these most pressing issues. I think the two, Jim mentioned divisive concept. I, I, I think that there are two major challenges out there that relate to history as a discipline. So one of them is this, what we call divisive concepts legislation, uh, where in a dozen legislatures, they've passed uh, laws that uh, have, a, even if, this, aside from what is specifically prohibited, there's a serious chilling effect on teachers. Uh, and it's mostly K through 12, but also higher ed. And there's a big focus on history here in terms of uh, centrality of racism uh, to evolution of American institutions, American culture. So that's, and we're right in the middle of this. And I think I can modestly say, uh, or immodestly, but truthfully say that we are by far far the most active history organization in this arena. We write to state legislators in states that are considering this legislation. Uh, we write to individual legislators. Uh, we are we have a long list of local newspapers even that we contact with these letters. Uh, we're in the middle of, uh, we're just about finished uh, making short videos uh, for parents and teachers so that they can remind people that the kids are not being taught to hate white people or hate America. Uh, we're going to be creating uh, little toolkits for this. Uh, so we're very active on, and so that is a major challenge for us uh, in terms of our obligation to the discipline and to teachers. The second major challenge is the changes going on in many institutions often with financial challenges, but quite frankly, often for other reasons, where humanities departments in general have been under threat. And again, we are by far the most active, I think, not just history organization, but maybe, well, organization at all. Uh, we vigorously respond to any department chair who says, I need help. Uh, they want to fold my department into something called a school. Or they're trying to get rid of my department. They're trying to get rid of the history major. Uh, we've written numerous letters to provosts, presidents. Uh, we now actually, depending on the discretion of the department chair, even send those letters to local media uh, so that people in a community know uh, what the college down the street is doing to the discipline of history. And we actually have found that in some cases, uh, these the this messaging has has helped so this is another challenge the discipline face that faces that we have to play a central role can i follow up on that real quick i mean and it's just a brief comment because when jim mentioned this is one of the challenges i do think 
you know, in this particular moment, the question of like the bandwidth, for example, of the administrative apparatus of the organization really does come into question, right? I mean, it's like, how much can the organization do and how much should it do? But, you know, and I'm of, I don't, I think Jim and I actually agree on this, but we can talk about it. Um, there is a part of me that thinks that the AHA has a has a really unique platform, uh, not only as a scholarly organization, but in the way that it talks to high school teachers and others who are interested in history, even just general as people out there in the world who care about history. Um, I, I don't think most people understand or are aware of this, but um, and Jim, you're going to have to correct me on exactly the wording of this, but the AHA, unlike other scholarly organizations, is actually was chartered by Congress. I mean, in other words, it's a, there's a U.S like mandate in many ways for this organization. And so it raises questions about like how far afield should the organization go in, in articulating and advocating for history? My own view is that we should be as capacious as we possibly can and try to draw like the general public into what we're doing. But then that creates a question of like, you know, are we abandoning the professional responsibilities that we have? And like, so those are real interesting sort of questions that I think we're facing right now. And I mean, I don't know what, I think Jim has a, a much clearer vantage point of this than I do, but it is, it is a real challenge in my mind. I, I, I think that's exactly right. The, the congressional charter, uh, only the, as far as I know, among scholarly organizations, only the AHA, the American Political Science Association, and I think the American Council of Learned Societies are chartered by Congress. And we used to think that that charter and a couple of bucks would get you on the subway. Uh, it was never clear what the, what the, why that charter mattered. Lately, Jim is absolutely right in invoking it. That lately what that charter does, at least sometimes in certain congressional offices, uh, in certain places outside of academia, uh, it suggests that we have an obligation and uh, a legitimation. Uh, uh, we have an obligation and some legitimacy as trying to represent the historical discipline in the United States and to promote it, which is what the charter specifically refers to. So when we deal with members of Congress, sometimes we'll say, the American Historical Association is chartered by you guys to do this. So you need to listen to us. Does the, It almost sounds like you're uh, like framing the AHA as sort of like a history court. Do you think that would be a, a fair? Not a court. No, never, never. Not a court. Uh, we are very careful about that. Uh, we are often asked by people to require this, require that. You should require departments to do this. You should... You should ban this. We can't ban anything. We can't require anything. We have three levers. We have the power to convene. We have the power to legitimate. And we have the power to inspire. And courts don't do those things. And that's what we can do. And that's a pretty broad landscape. But those are the things that we, we can do. We can establish ethical, we do establish uh, ethical guidelines. We don't enforce them. Uh, that's up to an employer to say, you have violated the AHA's ethical guidelines or for a historian to go to their um, supervisor and say, you can't make me do this. It's a violation of the, the ethical guidelines of my discipline. 
Uh, so we provide those guidelines for people to use. Yeah, that, that's that's interesting, um, and, and that certainly makes sense. I think for you know the nature of the organization. Um, I'm wondering, you know, if you could talk a little bit about because uh, you you guys have have touched on a on a variety of different points about the challenges facing the profession of, his, of history in general and just the challenges that historians face and what their role is. So I, I'm just wondering if you guys could talk a little bit about your view of, you know, the role or the, um, the activities that historians should play in public life. <laughs> Who's going to go first? Um, so, I'm, I'm Jim and I probably have differences of opinion on this one. So I, I think, I think historians have an important role to play in public life. Uh, but I think there's this interesting thing happening now, particularly with the new digital world where, you know, public life has become lived out loud in every possible forum, oftentimes impulsively. And I do feel like that, that there's a, there's an impulse toward, uh, people putting their scholarship and their ideas out there, un, you know, unrefined. Uh, and I, I, I worry about that. But I also reject the old model where you had sort of these, you know, a very small number of talking heads who the press and the, you know, people in government would go to over and over and over again. So there is a dem democratizing effect of the present time we're in. But I also worry deeply about uh, the dilution of the kinds of really hard scholarship and the really you know, time consuming work that went into producing, for example, uh, a scholarly monograph. Right. Uh, so, you know, on the one hand, I'm I'm a champion of the idea of getting our ideas out into the public realm. But I'm, I'm a little hesitant because uh, they get garbled, they get abused, they get chewed up, spit out. And actually, I think they get misrepresented oftentimes, even by people who who hold the credentials of the Ph.D. and have the capacity to do the kind of work that is the hard work. And I worry in the long term that that uh, that we'll lose sight of what makes what historically has made us a discipline. And that is this really hard, rigorous work that goes into producing, for example, a scholarly monograph. I think for me, it's a both and. Uh, I, I first of all, I, I, I'm not sure I agree uh, about the risks of putting our stuff out there in a public realm where it will be misunderstood, misconstrued, and, and misused, if not abused. And I give as an example a book published um, by one of my teachers 40 years ago. 45 years ago about emancipation and his argument in the book had a lot to do with the failure of the federal government to do what needed to be done for emancipated people and the failure of some of the federal agencies uh, and the federal structures to do what needed to be done. And there was a review of this book in the Wall Street Journal that was very positive by an economist saying, see, this book proves beyond the shadow of a doubt with all of this evidence, the limitations of federal activity in helping people who are newly liberated or people who need help from somebody or basically people who are poor and lack resources. 
And then it even went on to say, and there are lessons here for the new generation of freed people, the boat people coming from Vietnam. I kid you not. So this notion that people could take scholarship that's serious, deeply embedded in primary sources, and then use it for some bizarre purpose is, is not new. I also think that to expand what we consider scholarship in order to create incentives for historians to be more active in the public realm uh, might make it easier for more historians, first of all, uh, to take what they know and what we know and make it useful. Second of all, it could help people at institutions where they spend 50, 60 hours a week on their teaching. They teach four courses, five courses a semester. Uh, they don't have time to go to the archives to do the kind of research Jim has described. Uh, they don't have the time. They don't have the resources. Uh, but the question becomes, can they do something that we call historical scholarship? And the answer may be yes, they can write short pieces that are scholarly. And this is a conversation we're having now, actually, at the AHA that Jim and I are involved in, is how do we think about the both and uh, without giving up the value of that, uh, the centrality of the book? Uh, is it possible to say that there is such a thing as a scholarly op-ed? Uh, that can be peer-reviewed post hoc. Uh, what we have found in general, and this is aside from what you want to call scholarship or not, is that there is often a dearth of understanding of historical context when people are making decisions, whether it's in Washington, in corporate boardrooms, in universities even. So we now, we do, this was a pre-COVID thing, we were doing briefings for congressional staff on issues that the Congress was considering. It was shocking how few congressional staff actually knew who we were fighting in the Korean War while Congress was talking about Korean policy. While there were debates in Congress about immigration, we learned that a surprise, strikingly small number of congressional staff knew that the door had been largely closed to immigrants for four decades. Uh, some of them knew what happened in 1965. Very few of them knew what happened in 1924 uh, in terms of creating the need for the legislation in 1965. So how do you make decisions about immigration about uh, policies regarding, regarding admission of immigrants if you have no idea that for 40 years we wouldn't let people in. Uh, so there's all sorts of things. Uh, I mean, we're see obviously seeing this in Ukraine right now. How can you possibly be making decisions about what to do there if you don't know something about the history of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, Ukrainian nationalism, Etc. Etc. So the public role is essential. The, the difficulty is thinking about how do we create incentives uh, for that public role, and how do we help historians learn how to speak to the public or to publics? 
Yeah, I would, I would, I would just add to that. That um, first of all, I would say that I, I do think this looks a little bit different. This question about sort of how one inter- interacts with the public versus uh, doing the kind of historical research and work, the hard, long form monograph kind of work. Uh, it, it looks a little bit different if you're outside of the United States, in other words, outside of the U.S. field. And part of this is about, and, and this has been something that's been brewing, I would say, now for a number of years in terms of of uh, outside funding, in terms of language training. A number of things are, have been chipping away at the ability, for example, for, for scholars who work in Latin America or Africa uh, to be able to actually, as a graduate student, to be able to, to get the language training, to find the funding, and then the encouragement to actually go and live in another country for a long period of time. That was the old way of doing things, and it is quickly going by the wayside for a whole host of reasons that have to do with graduate training, that have to do with the, the, dim, the diminution of, of, of training in languages, uh, and not the least of all, um, the, the end of, of the kinds of funding that used to send people overseas. I mean, just in the past couple of weeks, we've learned that, for example, one of the main sources for funding for uh, students wanting to do international research in the humanities and social sciences, the, um, the SSRC fellowships, the IDRFs have disappeared. And that, you know, when, when these things happen, basically you're, you're sort of um, you're bringing to an end a certain kind of way of doing research and history that I think structurally lends itself towards students and faculty falling back on a, a, a set of patterns that uh, lean much more into you know, small pieces of historical production that are created locally and are for the consumption of an American audience. And so they're, they're, I think there are issues that, that play into this question that go beyond, that, that sort of bear on fields outside of the U.S. that I think one needs to bear in mind. And I think that you know, Jim's reference to the lack of funding for the language skills for the cultural skills that are, quite frankly, the cultural skills that are required to truly understand the history of another place. And and Jim, you would know better than I. Um, is it how how hard is it to understand the historical framework of another country if one never gets the opportunity to go there? Yeah, I mean, see, the, for me. And this is a very hard thing to quantify for people, right? I mean, and it, it, for me as a historian, I've never written about a place that I don't at least go there. Even even if it's simply a matter of walking the streets and seeing the places, for me, that is abs- of absolute crucial importance. Otherwise, it's just all it's all sort of created through the archive itself. And this is what we're so often criticized for is just being, you know, being servants to the archive. And frankly, the place and the space and the smells and the language itself, uh, being in the space and speaking with people and understanding the worlds in which, uh, you know, the, our historical subjects occupied is of absolute crucial importance to me. I mean, it, 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 it also can, it is also one of the things that I think is important in conveying history in the classroom. So I think we owe it to our undergraduate students to be able to understand these spaces as well. Uh, I, I worry deeply that, that, that because so many graduate students in particular now, and by the way, there's, I should add that, that many of them, because they are, they are creatures of, of a generation that has grown up in social media primarily, the things we were talking about earlier where, you know, you have to network and actually meet people. There's a, there is 
no small amount of fear on the part of graduate students about actually having to get outside of their comfort zone. So actually getting on the plane and going to a place and living among people that you don't know and being a little bit isolated for up to a year or two years is daunting for many of them. But in the old days, that was that was just the way that we did things. Now that's been called into question. And I think that there are there are some deep um, um you know, ramifications and, and implications for that on the way that we teach history outside of the U.S. It's important in part because funding for these kind of programs has diminished considerably, uh, in particular, the Title VI and Fulbright-Hayes programs. And to try to explain to legislators and to others, this is not just a matter of people doing research. It's a matter of our country our country understanding other parts of the world. Uh, people in business, people in government, doesn't really matter, but I think especially business people who are involved now in, in, a, in, a, in a global economy, uh, making these kinds of decisions that they're making without having it taken a course in the part of the world that they're looking at or without having to been exposed to historical work by people who've had the experience and the opportunities that Jim describes uh, is, a, is a serious problem. Uh, I can give you one easy example. There's only one place in the world to learn Chechen, other than a basement in Moscow, which is not a good place to learn it. And that's in Tbilisi, in Georgia. There's only one way you could possibly get funded to do that, and that's through the federal funding programs uh, that will pay for that. Why does it matter? Uh, if there's nobody in this country who can read Chechen other than native speakers uh, who are actually excluded from certain types of employment with the State Department, uh, we have a serious problem in terms of understanding a part of the world uh, that on and off has been really important. Uh, and this is true for all sorts of different languages. That just happens to be one I know about. Uh, the parts of the world that Jim studies, uh, there are very few Americans who have those language skills other than immigrants uh, who we depend upon. Thank God they're here uh, for the language skills that we need to understand those places. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, in the old days, these things were framed as national security issues. <laughs> And now that, that you don't hear them talked about in those ways. Uh, and, I, and I think those of us who work in academia kind of cringed when we would you know, hear others talk about our work as national security. But the reality is it absolutely was. I mean, the whole point is being able to bring these, these different places in the world into American classrooms makes our students, regardless of what they go on to do in their lives, it makes them aware of the world around them and it keeps them less isolated. Ironically, what seems to be happening in terms of trends, in terms of education, like really, you know, on the ground education around the world is that we're, we're becoming more isolated than we've ever been in a time when we're more connected than we've ever been. It's a really stark contradiction in some ways. Uh, so what I, I, I don't know what the end game for this is, but what I do worry is that it, it, you know, for scholars of, of, you know, Asia, Latin America, Africa, what have you, that 
it's going to be created in the U.S. in the isolation of these computers that we work on, you know, in sort of these these spaces of, you know, universities, libraries and on the Internet. And I just don't think that's nearly as effective as is even for historians. I mean, I'm a historian of you know the 17th and 18th century. So all the people I write about are dead. But. I gained so much by being in the places and meeting and work like working in those archives with the, you know, with the descendants of the people that, that I'm writing about, uh, gaining all sorts of insights into, uh, you know, language is crucial to what we do. So when, when you're working in a space where the language that you're working in is spoken every day, you come to have nuanced understandings of the place and the space and the people that you would not understand if you're just reading all the time. And, and I think that, 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 again, making these crucial connections to, to real people is important for our national security. When I was a, a, a senior in college, I actually wa- initially was thinking like, oh, maybe I, I should go and study, get a master's or a PhD in history. Um, my plans were like very, you know, blown apart by by COVID. Um, but the thing is, whenever I was talking to people, grad students or whatever, everyone would always say the same thing over and over again. The job market is bad. Don't do this. I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit, that sense. Is this the perception? Is this how it's always been? Obviously, it's going to be competitive because it's hard to be a professional historian. But, you know, what are what, what reality is this? The the. The problem with framing it that way is the words you used. You said the job market. That implies there is a singular place where historians find jobs. And that's simply not true. Only 40, roughly half uh, of all history PhDs end up as tenured or tenure track professors. Contrary to popular wisdom, it's only about a sixth who are working primarily as non-tenure track faculty. The rest are doing other things. Teaching high school, uh, that that for, that 50%, uh, actually it does include community college, uh, roughly 20 to 25% of all history PhDs work in all sorts of different places, marketing, defense department, the UN, uh, college, higher ed administration is about five or 6%. So you have to start with the notion of what do we mean by the job market? And what does it mean to be able to find employment in a wider variety of places? Now, that requires transforming graduate education so that that 20 to 25% doesn't have to be people who are exceptional. Uh, mo- a lot of those people are people who uh, a light bulb went off earlier on. They were exceptionally thoughtful, innovative. Uh, this needs to be a part of graduate education, uh, preparation for a wider variety of employment. But there's absolutely no reason why a history PhD is qualified to be should be qualified to be only a college professor. Uh, you went to college. If you went to someplace for an MA and then some other place for a PhD and then had a temporary job somewhere, at that point you have experience in four or five different higher ed institutions. 
Uh, are you qualified for higher ed administration? Uh, by experience, maybe. Uh, can you take a graduate course in the history of higher education? As a graduate student, instead of your assistantships being only teaching and research, can one of them be an assistantship in a part of the university where you can contribute to the work that they do in the same way you contribute to teaching? Of course. So if we rethink graduate education as preparation for a wider variety of career paths, then this notion that, well, don't do it because you'll never get a job becomes seriously problematic. Uh, However, I would not ever, ever, ever advise anybody to get a PhD in the humanities on borrowed money. So the question becomes, can you spend those six, seven years acquiring what you need to acquire to have that history PhD uh, without having to borrow? Will, will the university fund that education? If you can find an institution that will fund that education and that will give you the kind of education that prepares you for three or four career paths, that's different. There's no more reason why every person who gets a history PhD becomes a university professor than there would be for everybody who plays college football to end up in the NFL or for the thousands of Americans who prepare as dancers to be one of the five people who can actually make a living as a dancer. Uh, many, many Americans spend a lot of time becoming proficient at something that ends up not being the central thing that they do. And what most of them will say is, this is who I am. This is what made me a broader person. This was an opportunity for me to try something. And there's no reasons why history can't be the same. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective on this, I, you know, I, I think it's interesting, Caleb, the way you frame that question. I'd be curious. I throw back at you, you know, all the people that you talked to who said, yeah, but they're, you know, you won't get a job. What's interesting about that to me is that, 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 that it implies that there are a group of young people out there who, who actually understand that or they believe that graduate school in history or whatever the discipline is, is a space where you go to then get a job in academia. And I'm not sure that we aren't our own worst enemies in having created that assumption. Personally, I mean, I have a different kind of story. I, I grew up as a fairly working class person, and I, I, I liked history and political science when I was at, at the University of North Carolina. And I thought I wanted to go to law school. I actually did go to law school for a year. I hated the law. I went back to Charlotte, and I and I worked. Uh, I, I had a part-time job working at the airport and I started taking education courses at UNC Charlotte, thought I wanted to be a high school teacher and a coach. Uh, and then I got into the, I got into a high school and was working as a student teacher and realized that I was more of a social worker than a teacher. And I really liked history. So I said, you know, I'd like to go back to graduate school and I'll get an MA and then I'll come back and coach, you know, cause at least with an MA I'll make more money. Uh, I went to UNC, I was unfunded, but I was in state. So my tuition, my, my, you know, semester tuition was less than a thousand dollars in those days. So it was, it was not the, the price of education has gone up so much that now it's, that's, you know, you can't, I, like Jim said, there's no way I would gamble on, on telling someone to go to university for graduate school if they had to pay their own way. I think that's, that's just, that's insane. Um, but I had that. 
I had that option in those days. And uh, I went and the majority of my colleagues in that incoming cohort did have funding. Many of them from, were from out of state. Uh, but I didn't understand that the profession necessarily led to a job in academia. I actually had thought that I might leave after I was finished with my MA. But when I got there, I really enjoyed the work and I was good at it and I was successful. And I realized that that was a path, but I never thought of it as an entitlement. And I was doing it just to circle back to sort of career diversity. I, in my head, I told myself, well, I will gain better skills to be a, be a you know, a high, a high, high school teacher. And I really wanted to coach. So I knew that would give me a better credential if I had the MA, number one. Number two, I realized shortly thereafter, when I wasn't sure whether I wanted to keep on going for the PhD, I realized, well, the set of skills I'm getting in terms of language and I'm able to travel. For me, travel was like opening up new worlds. I loved that. I wanted to do more of it. And it made me more marketable in a whole lot of ways because of cultural dexterity, because of language training. So I never imagined myself to be, be in graduate school and it was limiting my possibilities. Quite the contrary. I mean, I didn't know what those were. And I will confess that I would still drive by fast food restaurants and see the, you know, $5 an hour sign and think, yeah, I could probably manage on that. But, you know, um, the point was, I know, I understood what I was getting myself into. And so when you raise that question now, it always, I mean, and I hear students say this too, uh, you know, that, that there's a sort of entitled expectation that you get a job when you go in, in academia, when you go to graduate school. And I just, I don't, I don't understand that, that mindset, except for the fact that I think the professor itself has created that expectation. And I wish we, there was some way we could undo it. Uh, at the University of Wisconsin, there was a period of time, which I think we've moved away from now, which disturbs me. But we would when we would send admissions letters to students who had uh, been admitted into our graduate program, there was a paragraph that said the job market is miserable right now. You know, you need to understand that you will probably not get a job in academia. If you're OK with this, then please come and be a part of our cohort. We were very blunt about it. Um, and people still came with that understanding. And I think that that's important. I mean, what we do is not necessarily, this isn't training for a singular job. There are other places you can go for technical training to learn particular kinds of professions. That is not what the training in history, graduate training in history is or should be, if you ask me. Well, I think it's interesting because we often think of law school as more vocational. Certainly historians will, will roll their eyes at their colleagues across campus in the law school as being vocational. But actually, when you think about it, law school prepares you for a lot of things other than practicing as an attorney. I think I would add to Jim's point there, not the professors saying this is what we're, we're only preparing you to do one thing. I think the real problem is less that than the definition of success that yes, we are preparing you to do one thing is what they say, and that's a problem. But in many cases, without even knowing it, I think a lot of history departments and other disciplines still somehow convey to graduate students that if you don't become a professor, you have not succeeded. Maybe they've moved past you have failed, but it's still you have not succeeded. Uh, and I say that if you think about day one of graduate school, and there's an orientation, and you have a very well-meaning director of graduate studies who wants to do exactly what Jim just said, be transparent. So the director of graduate studies, you know, first tells you where the department office is and who you need to talk to to get your money and what you might be teaching. And then says, and I want to be transparent. Uh, here's how our department did last year. 
we placed 37% or 72% of our PhDs in tenure track jobs. And they're trying to be transparent by giving you the exact numbers. But what have they just said? They've just told you what success means. Often they'll even say, we didn't do very well last year. We placed only 37% of our students in tenure track jobs. So those other 63% are, you know, they're not in the room, but this may get back to them. And it's a kind of, well, what am I, chopped liver? Uh, I have a great job as a historian uh, in the State Department, or I have a great job as a, as a historian who is now working in student affairs at this very same university. Uh, I'm kind of happy with what I do. Why, why isn't the department pointing to me as a successful outcome? So I think part of it is, you know, this, what Jim was talking about is entitlement. I think a lot of it is our own fault. That it's not so much a sense of entitlement as a message that we give as to what constitutes success and failure. And by giving the message about what constitutes success and failure, we lead students to believe that they have to be professors in order to feel successful. We also convey the idea that research is more important than teaching. Uh, we convey the idea that your research defines who you are. Uh, if you teach at a community college 10 courses a year, uh, you're as much defined by what you teach uh, or many other institutions where you teach a lot. So part of it is the narrowness that we convey to our students uh, in what it means to be a historian. Yeah, no, I agree, Jim. I mean, but, but I think it is that singular definition of success that creates the entitlement, right? In other words, so, I mean, that's the problem. We don't give graduate students the tools to be able to articulate themselves as anything, you know, there's, there's one goal and one goal only. I mean, we started, we've, we've started to get better at this, but it's, it's, I think, halting. We've only done it haltingly. And I think we still have too many of our colleagues who, who just sort of by default say, well, I don't, you know, I've never been trained how to train students to do anything other than be a professor. So what am I supposed to do? And they throw their hands up and they, and they go back to what they've always been doing. Uh, and AHA has been at the forefront of trying to push the profession to, to, to think differently and to, to um, uh, you know, grant our students the tools and give them the idea, you know, give us as professors the tools to be able to go into the classroom and open different vistas for our students. But I don't necessarily think that many that not, not all of our colleagues have been receptive. I'll just say that. <laughs> the former at one time, uh, this would have been over a decade ago the chief of staff to the speaker of the house of representatives was a historian and probably a large percentage of the faculty in the department in which he got his PhD considered that to be less than successful. He didn't get an academic job. Um, from a disciplinary perspective, I'm pretty damn glad that there would be a historian in that position. Absolutely. Amen. Yes. Yeah. There was once a historical history PhD who was the speaker of the house and he didn't do so well. Uh, but, you know, it's still, it, and so I'm not going to say, gee, thank God, but it's still uh, important to have people who think historically in a wider variety of, uh, of spaces. There's 
also the issue um losing my track here uh the issue of expectation so you asked about personal experience so i went to graduate school very different from jim uh although nobody in my family had ever gotten a phd uh college graduates but not a phd my expectation was in fact exactly that professorial expectation uh because nobody in my family had a PhD, uh, I didn't know anything about what it was like other than my professors in college. And the fact that everybody who my family knew, and it wasn't, I think, two people who had PhDs, and it was, wow, he has a PhD, she has a PhD, this is really impressive. Listen to what they say. Whether that was a good idea or not, I don't know. Uh, the guy down the street from us was a poet. Uh, who with a PhD who taught English uh, at, at a college nearby. And my parents spoke of him in hushed terms. Uh, but my notion of what life would be like was my professors. I went to graduate school in part because I wanted a life like my college professors had. It looked really cool. They lived in comfortable, not huge, they lived in comfortable homes uh, they spent their, it looked to me like they spent all their time reading books and talking to students about ideas. This seemed really cool. And it's why I went to graduate school as much as my interest in history. It was, this is a really cool life that they lead and I want to do this. Uh, and it's probable that many other people go to graduate school for that reason. Yeah. I, I would just add to what you said, Jim. Sorry. Just to add to what you said. Um, once I realized I could like what a PhD could get me in terms of a faculty kind of job. I mean, I, it was, I, I used the analogy back then and that it was kind of like being a professional athlete. I mean, I get paid to read and write. Those are the things I love to do. And what, what makes it better than being a professional athlete is I can do it until I keel over and die. It, I don't have a short shelf life. So it's like, it truly is. It's a, it's a remarkable privilege that we have that I think sometimes people do lose sight of as well. And the professional athletes is a useful analogy because a lot of humanities professors are very dismissive for good reason or critical of the athletic establishment in the university for not preparing the athletes for other careers. You've got a left tackle who is, who's got the training table, who's got all of the advantages uh, if they're in a division one university of training to be a top flight athlete, but a small percentage of them are going to make the NFL. Well, what do the rest of these guys do? And our colleagues for good reason are critical of the university for not preparing these students who are students as well as athletes, at least that pretense uh, for a career other than the NFL. Maybe if they're lucky, they're being prepared to coach at the high school or collegiate level, if they're lucky. So why should we be critical of the athletic establishment in the university for not preparing these young people for careers other than what they dream of and what's a wonderful career when we do the same thing? I think, um, you know, what it's making me think about is how 
you know, before I even went to college when I was in high school, the, the sort of the, the myth around was like, oh, don't don't study, you know, don't study history if you want a job. And this kind of sense, I mean, they'll say that about any anything in the humanities. You know, don't study X, you know, because you won't get your, you know, you won't become a computer programmer or you won't become an engineer. Um, and, you know, obviously history is like an extremely vital part of the humanities and just in general, this sort of liberal arts education. Um, and, you know, something else that I really liked that you guys sort of spoke about is this idea that it, it would be actually bad if 100% of people who study history in graduate school become history professors, because that would mean there would be no kind of tether or connection to the outside world. I hope that's not true, actually. I hope that there would be, because I would hope professors take part in a wide variety of places. But I also question this notion that you study history because people need to know history uh, in order to do various jobs, which happens to be true, but it's a limit. It's a limit statement that you're making. The study of history teaches judgment, and people don't realize that. That by when when you when you are a student who's learning history, what you're doing, and people call this critical critical thinking is not the right word. Everybody learns critical thinking. Uh, Physics majors learn critical thinking. But what a history major or history course teaches you is judgment. It teaches you to read both primary sources, in other words, what people who were there said, and secondary sources, description of what happened, uh, and to make judgments, to say, this makes no sense to me. This person was making this nonsense up. This is a reliable narrator. Uh, you're making judgments. You're making judgments about right and wrong. You're making judgments about people. This prepares you to do anything. I would argue that a course on uh, history where there's a lot of biographical emphasis uh, actually is good preparation for HR work because it teaches you how to think about people how to think about people in an ethical and moral context. So it's not just it's good to know history or the humanities teaches you to know thyself. Uh, these are serious marketable skills, especially judgment. I think what goes along with what Jim says, and I think it's really important in today's sort of political environment, is that history teaches you to accommodate disagreement. I mean, one of the things that Jim and I do agree on very much is that uh, Civil discourse among people who disagree vigorously over questions is of crucial importance, and it's just disappeared for the most part. Uh, and I do think that this is a discipline that teaches people, you know, from the very first, from the very start in, the, in any classroom, uh, that there are historical problems over which there are profound disagreements, and people debated them civilly and, and found compromise or found, you know, meeting points. Uh, that kind of discourse is absent from our politics today. And I think Jim and I both agree. Like, I, I, in fact, Jim, I, I, need, I owe you a, a, an email, Jim, because I'm trying to put together presidential panels for the AHA meeting in Philadelphia where there are people who fundamentally disagree. I want them to argue, you know, and we don't do. I mean, most of the panels that get set up for the meeting now oftentimes are, you know, it's people of like mind and they, they you know, it's, it's the amen corner. I want people to argue. I mean, and, and, and sometimes it gets personal. 
Um, but then you, you know, you, you have your say and you can walk out and you can, um, you know, agree to disagree. One of those issues that's come up recently is fascinating. And I would hope that there is space for argument among historians. Ken Burns, Mm. uh, uh, documentary on Franklin, I believe, is airing this week. I saw it last week. It's last week. Okay. Yep. Uh, so one of the issues that emerges in that documentary, and I have not yet seen it, but what I've read is that Burns handles it in a way that is perhaps insufficiently uh, reflective, uh, and that's I, I have to see it to see. But one of the issues is apparently. Franklin was one of the architects, the great, oh, not apparently, Franklin was one of the great architects of the compromises that made the Constitution happen. So there's an interesting historical issue here relating to the Three-Fifths Compromise. Mm -hmm. And the argument in Franklin's favor is that had that issue not been compromisable, and compromised, there would have been no nation. That there needed to be a compromise on that issue, given the existing political context. That said, one could argue that a compromise which permanently handed the handed people who owned, bought, and sold other people a measure of political power that was incommensurate with their actual population is violates any notion of human rights, ethics, or morality. Well, those are two very different understandings of the implications of the Constitutional Convention. I would argue that a class where a professor presents, or a high school teacher, presents students with this moral dilemma, political and moral dilemma, and require students to do even a little bit of reading and to watch the documentary, that's tremendously valuable. Not just in terms of learning history, but the kind of civil civic skill that Jim's just described. Mm. Uh, if only so students can learn things aren't that simple. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Right. You can come up with these kinds of examples. This happens to be one that is, uh, to me, was is, uh, quite striking. And actually, our annual meeting, uh, our, our the chairs of our program committee, uh, just yesterday, uh, we discussed how to how to create a panel on this at our annual meeting, uh, which we will do. How much of your work is this sort of thinking about how history is taught at the lower levels, uh, K through 12? more of it than 10 years ago. Uh, I think obviously in part because of what's going on politically around the country, uh, it's got a much higher public valence. But also the AHA actually has a long history of being involved in uh, secondary history education, but it's very it's been very sporadic. And the last time was quite some time ago. Uh, but what we've realized is this is absolutely crucial, not only in terms of just 
the kinds of education that students get, uh, but in terms of the membership of the organization itself, that we need to be, we need to include far more uh, teachers in high schools and community colleges, uh, which we have been doing over the last 10 years, but this needs more attention. Uh, one of the things that we do, we started doing about five years ago, maybe, is whenever we have our annual meeting, all public high school teachers in that city uh, can attend free of charge without paying a registration fee uh, as part of our responsibility to that city itself. Uh, it's one of the few things we can do to uh, do for a host city. Uh, Jim S., what is your sort of experience uh, with education, you know, being a historian and, you know, maybe some of the things that you've been thinking about around, uh, you know, high school education. Well, he coaches high school kids, so that's a whole different uh, yeah. perspective. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, as I intimated earlier, I'm, I, you know, I sort of went into uh, graduate school imagining that I was still going to be teaching high school. So, uh, my mother actually was an educator in, in, uh, primary schools. She was a science, uh, she eventually became, uh, the head of science for Charlotte Mecklenburg schools, uh, for their elementary, uh, schools. Uh, so I've, I've grown up in, in the sort of primary and secondary school environment in all sorts of ways. And I've continued to be engaged primarily through coaching, uh, coached high school football in, in Madison for the last five years. And, um, so I, I have those connections, but for me, in terms of like the, the way that the profession, the AHA in particular inter, interfaces, I, I mean, as I said, I think increasingly our constituency is high school teachers. I think that many of the political issues that we've talked about here today bear more heavily on high school teachers than they do even on, on, uh, folks, in, you know, professors in, in university classrooms. We're quite fortunate in the sense that many of us have the freedom of tenure and the ability to be able to say the things and teach the ways we want to teach. High school teachers don't have that luxury. So because of that, I think we 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 have a duty to to stand up and, and articulate the, the best practices of teaching, of pedagogy, of civil disagreement, uh, and to push back against those who would try to, you know, squash debate and to, you know, basically um, put a chilling effect on the ability for teachers to teach <laughs> accurately. Uh, so, I mean, I, I have, I sort of have layered, uh, experiences with, with, uh, secondary school teaching, but, uh, at the level, at the sort of perspective of history itself, uh, I think increasingly this is where the AHA is and needs to be. You know, something that I wanted to ask you guys, you know, I know that you're always, uh, plan, you know, you, you guys are clearly involved in a lot of things, but, Broadly speaking, what are the sort of plans for the AHA for the future? Things different than just uh, the typical functions? Well, I think we've talked about that a little bit. The plans for the future involve, uh, we've already begun the process of rethinking what an annual meeting looks like. Uh, we've already begun, uh, think we've just begun thinking about how to create more online experiences for historians, for our members. Uh, whether it's Zoom webinars. I mean, we had over uh, a thousand people sign up uh, for a webinar that we did on Ukraine, uh, where three historians, three distinguished historians talked about 
the historical context of what's happening there. That's a lot of people. Uh, and we had a similar uh, a small, a similar audience for a session we did on monuments, Confederate monuments. Uh, so one of the things that nobody really knows yet is what the size of the audience for online uh, conversation is going to be once people can spend more time socializing the way they used to. But clearly there is an audience. There's an audience for book talks. There's an audience for historical context of contemporary affairs. So that's one of the directions we have to be thinking about uh, going, uh, ramping up our activity, thinking of how we can do it. So there's the online presence, uh, online conversational presence, uh, rethinking the annual meeting. Uh, We need to think harder in the next five years about the kinds of professional development we can provide for people who teach history at all levels. Uh, The annual meeting not being a research meeting, which we have accomplished, but we have not gotten it to where it, what it is, which is a professional development environment. Uh, and this advocacy work, uh, clearly uh, we've started doing more of it in the last four or five years, and we need to think about how that's central to our mission. Uh, do you have like a podcast or other forms of outreach? The American Historical Review, which is our journal, has podcasts. And we actually now are beginning to work on creating podcasts as part of our suite of publications. The you know the the other thing now that we've we've spent a lot of time talking about history, the challenges facing it, and AHA's work, I was wondering if the two of you could talk a little bit about the uh, work that you guys do personally in history and some of the things that you're thinking about now regarding your discipline. Do I start, Jim? Mm, no, I'll defer because I'm trying to think. I don't, I'm not sure I quite understand the question. But. Well, for you, the answer would be, I assume, your scholarship in African history yeah, okay. uh, sure. and teaching and related publication work. For me, uh, it's mostly being an advocate for the discipline and trying to move the discipline in certain directions uh, in collaboration with our governing council uh, to, to make the kinds of changes in graduate education that we're trying to make to make the kind of changes in undergraduate. That's my work. That's what I spend many hours on. Uh, I don't have time, uh, unfortunately, uh, to go back to the kinds of research that Jim does uh, that I once did, and I don't have time right now to be to be teaching. So my work as a historian is in both promoting the discipline itself and helping helping our governing council to change the discipline and in the ways it needs to change. Yeah. So I, I, I'm glad I had a second to think about it because I'll answer the question in two registers. Uh, first, I'll follow up with on Jim by saying that um, I was the chair of my history department at the University of Wisconsin for three years. And I think that the work that I did there really gave me a different sort of perspective on uh, both my university and the profession more generally. And I think one of the most gratifying things that I did when I was chair was uh, to really ramp up our alumni relations. And I think insofar as uh, as a profession, we need to cultivate and um, uh, reveal and find those folks out in the world who were history majors or got advanced degrees in history who are all over the place in terms of uh, career diversity and some just truly remarkable success stories. 
uh, to bring those bring those stories to the fore and to illuminate and shine light on folks who are champions of our discipline, who are in you know wildly successful in finance, in law, in sports, in uh, digital technology and all sorts of fields that, you know, seemingly for many people have nothing to do with history. Uh, what struck me so deeply was the extent to which folks who have become wildly successful in their own fields hearken back to the sort of formative years as, you know, in, in the study of history as the things that propelled them forward. And that moved me in profound ways that I still, that still, um, uh, animate me and motivate me. Uh, so that's one way. And I, I stay in touch with many of those people and I still try to cultivate those relationships. And I've, I've spoken with Jim about trying to sort of synergize uh, former chairs. I, I happen right now to be in Los Angeles uh, and uh, Steve Aaron is a former chair of, of the UCLA History Department who does similar kind of work. And I, I, in my imagination, sort of my wildest imagination is to bring together people like that who have those similar connections and to make history a more viable thing nationally and to get those people to articulate their stories publicly uh, as advocates for what we do in the discipline. Um, I'm seeing Steve Aaron actually tonight for dinner, by the way, Jim. Um, so the that that's one thing the other thing is just my my scholarship the main reason i'm here is because i was presenting on on this new book project that i'm working on and uh you know i think every one of us who are working historians uh in, you know in the profession particularly at, at r1 schools we, we 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 write we do research still um for me that that implies going to archive still too so i'll be traveling in two weeks to go back to england to just put some finishing touches on this book project which is for the most part done. I mean, I have a good working draft, but I have a few questions I still need to, to polish off. Um, so my, you know, I'm doing my work. Uh, and I'm, I'm also I'm in a parallel project. I'm working on my AHA presidential uh, lecture, which is, uh, that's another thing that's been keeping me busy. So, I think One thing that Jim referred to is really important. Some of the questions you've asked about how we make change, which is department chairs, uh, one of the things that we have done in the last 10 years is vastly increased the work we do with department chairs. Uh, the HA for a long time has had department chairs uh, lunch at our annual meeting, but we now have a workshop every summer where 30 or 40 department chairs get together uh, and they decide what the issues are that they want to talk about. And we've now extended that thinking in some ways to graduate students. Uh, and actually this started at a, because of a meeting at UCLA with their students. Uh, one of the things that we do at our annual meeting now is we have a track of events for, uh, for officers of history graduate associations, history graduate student associations. Uh, they have different names at different universities, but nearly, or at least most graduate programs have some kind of history graduate student organization. And we've realized that they play that same kind of leadership role uh, that department chair, obviously not the authority, but they are the ones playing the leadership role with the graduate students. And they provide us with a unique opportunity to interact with or a unique opportunity to find out what students in very different kinds of programs can do and want to do. Uh, and at the same time, they can communicate to their colleagues what we can help with. So one of the ways, so a lot of the work that I do 
depends in some ways on the work that Jim does in the sense that historians study change. Sociologists think more self-consciously than we do about models of change. But actually, that's what we do, is we think about how change happens and we develop either consciously or just in our heads models of how change happens, of who makes change, uh, how do you understand change. And my job, with Jim's help as president, is to translate that into an institutional context, into a discipline context. Uh, I have to have a model of how change happens in our discipline. And that's what's emerged over the last decade for me. My final question uh, for you two is what general advice would you give to a student of history, a grad student, and then also someone who is involved in history or interested in history, but maybe isn't aware of exactly the, the goings on of the AHA? The first question about like a graduate student, like now, uh, I will say that, you know, these past two years have been really, really tough on everyone, but I think it's, they've been particularly tough on graduate students uh, for some of the reasons that we've already talked about here today. Things like, um, you know, the inability to travel, the um, drying up of funding, it's left, it's sort of left graduate students in this, this suspended animation. And for many of them, I mean, graduate school can, for many people can already be infantilizing and to have to sort of extend that period out in, a, in isolation I mean, I've seen, at least in my department, and I've heard stories from others that we've seen more attrition, more students just dropping out. I mean, I, I even had, we even had students in our department who were, who had funding from SSRC and Fulbright and just, you know, because of the delays and travel and everything else, it just wore them down and they dropped out of the program entirely. So these are some of the very best and brightest graduate students um, who are, are opting out. So what I would say is, you know, I think we all need a reset in terms of like what, you know, how we move forward. Uh, and, you know, I would I would give them the most encouragement I possibly could. And a lot of that relates to sort of personal connection, the stuff we were talking about earlier. I think, you know, as mentors, we need to get our graduate students out from behind their computer screens and have conversations with them over meals and and, you know, have real human connection again. And, and I, I, that's important for making them realize that we care. I mean, we care about one another as people. I know this sounds maybe a little bit um, um, too touchy-feely, but the, I, I think it's a crucial at this particular juncture that graduate students understand that, 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 that neither the world nor the discipline normally operate this way. Uh, and if we want to have a future that I think we need to, you know, reach out to one another. The other thing I would say in terms of like someone who wanted to come into the profession um, I think I would encourage them to come in with their eyes wide open about what their what their actual uh, goals are. Uh, the The idea that they would be coming in to get a job in the professorate, I think, is is something I would I would disabuse them of. I try to do that in you know with undergraduates who want to go to who tell me they want to go to graduate school anyway. Uh, I ask them explicitly, okay, so what do you think you're going to do with your degree? And of course, 99% of them say they want to be like me, you know, and I say that's that is highly unlikely. What, you know, tell me, give me another answer. And sometimes they don't have one. And I say, OK, we'll go and sleep on it and come back and we can talk. Uh, but if they don't, sometimes they don't come back. Uh, so I, I think having that honest conversation about your motivation for going to, to graduate school. Uh, for me, it was a, like I said, it was about learning languages and traveling. And I, I, I would have been perfectly satisfied 
uh, with getting the degree. I, I didn't have expectations. And maybe that's part, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying people shouldn't have expectations, uh, but having lower expectations and sort of seeing the, the, the achievements that you, that you make along the way in graduate school as, as, um, as important skills to gain for a whole range of possibilities is a better approach than just thinking you're going to go into the professorate. Um, I didn't have, ex- I had, I didn't have expectations. I had desires, which were like expectations. Maybe the word was hopes. So I think I was a little more invested than Jim was in becoming a professor because the reason I went to graduate school was because these professors I had in college led such cool lives. And I chose an advisor in part because it was somebody who I finally met and felt that I could be like this person as well as live the kind of life this person led. It took me a while to get to that person. Uh, But my answer to you would be that those students should, I hate to say this, go to our website, go to the website of other historical organizations and cruise deeply as well as widely, because in some case, in some cases, things are buried, but there's a lot there that indicates the different kinds of things that historians do and historical organizations do. I also take seriously Jim's reference to the in-person interactions. And those are not as hard as people think because there's a lot of history organizations. And quite frankly, for the purposes you're describing, it doesn't really matter which conference you go to. I'd like to say come to our conference and kind of walk around and meet people and see see what it's like. You know, we have an orientation session for first-time attendees. There's lots of ways to meet people, actually. But it doesn't have to be us. It could be the Organization of American Historians. It could be the Urban History Association. Uh, it could be multidisciplinary organizations like the African Studies Association. Uh, it can be the American Historical Association Pacific Coast Branch uh, that meets every year and has about 275 people, so it's much smaller. Uh, but meets out west, uh, and and these organizations meet on college campuses. They meet in different cities. Uh, the Western Historical Association is going to be in San Antonio this fall. Uh, I would say go to a conference, whichever one you can get to easily, and see what it's like. Uh, talk to students. Talk to the graduates. All conferences have some graduate students. Talk to some graduate students. Uh, that would be a way of getting to Jim's uh, to Jim's comment about it being about personal interaction. For sure. I mean, and just one more plug. I mean, to follow Jim. I mean, he, he's um, he's being kind of uh, shy about inviting people to, to the AHA meeting. I, I would reiterate something I said earlier. I, for those out there who might be listening, who are you know old timers who who remember the AHA meeting as this space that was full of anxiety and lots of people around trying to get jobs and, you know, being unsure of themselves. And then the sort of old boys network, I would reiterate that, you know, the, the meeting now is a very different space. I mean, I, I, I'm uh, really pleased and amazed at the number of young people, like I said, that were in New Orleans, high school teachers, and they are so eager to to soak up what's going on and to interact and to meet one another. 
I, I really do feel like it's a very different sort of social space these days. So I would encourage anyone out there who who wants to make those connections to see AHA is actually, a, I mean, it's a huge meeting, right? There, there are thousands of people who come to the meeting when, when it's a non-COVID norm, normal year. Uh, but my sense is that the meeting itself has changed irrevocably and that, the, that those who are coming to the meeting are a very different group of people than we've typically seen in the in the not too distant past. Uh, and I think that's a very good thing. And I would invite others to come and partake. So as long as Jim's going to do that, uh, <laughs> it is important to know, first of all, that student registration is only 40 bucks. Yes, sir. <laughs> but even more important than that, because of my comment earlier about mentorship. Any historian who comes to our annual meeting can take students with them, whether it's high school students, college students, or graduate students, for 15 bucks a piece. So you're a college student. Uh, if you can find out who on your campus is going, uh, and quite frankly, if you're a student and you ask this faculty member to do this and you take out your wallet and offer to pay them, uh, most likely they will say no. Uh, you don't have to pay me <laughs> for it. Uh, but this is something that our, our annual meeting in that sense is very accessible to students. We have And we have an orientation session for undergraduate students, which is usually packed uh, for graduate students. Uh, and we're in Philadelphia this year. So anybody on the Amtrak corridor uh, can easily come. And certainly if you're in the Philadelphia area and you don't even have to pay to stay. And if students want to share a hotel room three or four ways, uh, it actually gets pretty inexpensive, especially if they don't have to pay registration. And they're yeah, just recorded. just to add on, Jim. I mean, I, I, the the fifteen dollars a student if they're accompanying a member is actually or a, a professor is actually really important. But I would say to any of the anyone in the professorate who's listening out there. Be proactive, please. If you're planning to attend the meeting, go in and you know let your graduate students and students know that that this is a possibility because they're not going to approach anyone. It's kind of hard for students to know who to ask or where to go in these situations. I try to make it a habit uh, to announce in front of our department to make sure that our graduate program director issues the announcement that says, "Hey, so and so is going to AHA this year. If any of you want to." piggyback on the membership and, and join the meeting. It's only $15. It needs to be uh, marketed to students uh, by those in the professorate. And it's, sometimes there's a disconnect there. And I don't, think, I don't think students are able to take advantage of it as widely as they should because of that. So please, uh, you know, promote that. Actually, yeah, there's uh, one of the things that we're aware of, in fact, is that what some faculty members do is they make it widely known that they're going and that they would be happy to register all their students at 15 bucks a piece. And then the department pays for it. Mm -hmm. uh, but we've had people who have brought eight students and the department chair comes up with $120 somewhere uh, to pay for it or three students. And they come up with 45. I mean, this is, this is often something a department can do. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it, this actually works really well. Well, Jim S. and Jim G., thank you so much for being on the New Books Network. It was great talking to you guys. And I'm sure a lot of people, anyone who listened to this, got a lot out of it. So thank you so much.